I don't have a volunteer, I'll just play something on the stereo. Otherwise, in your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 65. This is the Lord's response to Isaiah's prayer, plea, cry. As we've already seen, I've got it summarized this way. Mostly this is what we did last week, the first screen or two. In Isaiah 65, the Lord's response is an assurance that his purposes of redemption, that is salvation, and judgment are being accomplished. It sure seems like to Isaiah that Israel has this insurmountable sin problem and he doesn't know the solution. But God has made these wonderful promises and the Lord gives assurance his purposes of redemption and judgment are exactly being accomplished. And it was beyond what Isaiah could understand. I think it's got to be beyond our own understanding because God's salvation really is such a miracle. But coupled with the miracle of salvation is also judgment. The two go together. The Bible does not teach a universalism that everybody winds up in the most wonderful place apart from faith. So both those themes are together. The Lord assures Isaiah he will also... He will, he will always preserve or save a remnant in Israel. And that cluster of grapes, the few grapes that have a little bit of juice, those that are trusting and believing, the Lord will preserve them. The Lord will save them. The Lord announces he's going to save Gentiles. And we found out last week from Paul that this will provoke national Israel's jealousy. The Lord will always have a remnant of Israel... But by saving Gentiles, he's going to provoke national Israel to jealousy. And last week, we also saw that the Lord will certainly distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous, or the unrepentant. Uh, that's what we did last week. That's actually what we read even this morning in uh, those passages, or those verses beginning back in verse 13, where there's a, a distinction between blessing and cursing. It reminds you of... Uh, back in the, uh, when Moses received the law. And Israel was assembled on two mountains. And one side is reading the blessing. And one side is reading the cursing. Because, because both are going to be accomplished by Almighty God. So I'm going to reread those verses for you. Verses 13 to 16. Therefore thus says the Lord. Behold my servants shall eat. But you shall be hungry. Behold my servants shall drink but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name. And then verse 16, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. And then on the screen, I've got that last verse. And the last phrase or the last clause of verse 16, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. That last clause is what is explained in all the rest of the chapter. And it's an astounding clause because the my eyes, I've capitalized my, the Lord is speaking. Those former troubles are forgotten by the Lord. Those former troubles are hidden from the Lord's eyes. What the Lord is about to do is so transformative, 
It is so comprehensive, it is so complete, that the Lord uses language of, I've forgotten and I've hidden. This is such a change. And it's explained all in the rest of the chapter. So it starts off with this, verse 17, for, for is a because word, the reason why the Lord can say it's hidden from my eyes, the reason why the Lord can say is it's forgotten by me, is for, behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Behold, he's capturing your attention. Again, it's, it's the word in Isaiah. We found it all the way along. Isaiah is all about the beholds. These, it draws your attention to something, and you don't want to miss it. You don't want to pass it by like, oh, yeah, I've memorized that verse, or, or I've, I've heard that before. It's to dwell on it, to think about it. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine, behold, God has forgotten our sin. God has hidden from his eyes our unbelief, our, our prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Behold, he's, he's gotten rid of all that because he creates new heavens and a new earth. And he says, the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. I think he's talking about his people. The Lord isn't remembering those things. And his people aren't remembering those things. We can only not remember because the Lord not remembers first. We can only put those things in the past because God has put them in the past first. We love Him because He loved us first. We know Him because He knew us first. So you've got verse 16 and 17. They're necessarily tied together. Necessarily tied together. How are these new heavens and earth depicted? What details were we given? We read through the little insert on your, your bulletin. It's describing this new heavens and new earth. Uh, if you were to summarize, this is very much going to be kind of a topical message. Uh, we're not going to break it down word by word and verse by verse. I don't have time for that uh, to accomplish what I want to accomplish. But there are certain details given where we get a sense of what this new heavens and new earth looks like. Number one, it's all about Jerusalem. Because it's been all about Jerusalem for Isaiah from the beginning. Isaiah is a book structured around everything is made new as it pertains to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the end game in Isaiah. And so the focus is this new heavens and new earth, it's all encapsulated in one city, Jerusalem. Now, that, when God says, I create a new heavens and a new earth, it's, me, it's meant to make you think back to Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you go through seven days of creation where God keeps separating and dividing, and, and then he, he builds on this creation. But in this creation, it's all about Jerusalem. And there aren't these days of creation. It's not the, the assembly of this group and that group and this feature. and that. It's all focused on the city of Jerusalem, as it's always been in Isaiah. Or, uh, yeah, in Isaiah. Secondly, other features are, there's rejoicing and gladness. No weeping. No distress. That's hard to imagine because we all live lives with a certain amount of anxiety and distress and disappointment and sorrow and pain. And yet this world, there's... What's predominant is this rejoicing and this gladness. Another feature 
is longevity and vitality. And a little bit troubling, diminished disease and death. That's a little bit troubling because I'm imagining most of you are aware that this isn't the only place in Scripture that talks about new heavens and new earth. And in fact, it's not the only time in Isaiah where he's described some of these things. And in other occasions, there's no disease and there's no death. But in this description, it's diminished. It's not absent. It's not entirely removed. In this description, it's diminished. What's predominant is this longevity of life and a certain vitality of life. Also in this description, we have prosperity and productivity. Uh, Nobody's going to labor in vain. Everybody here has labored in vain. Uh, Not all that sometimes you labor and you're satisfied with the end result. Sometimes you labor and it's lost. I'm generally... I've learned over the years to be very careful about backing up my work on the computer. I try to make sure that it automatically saves every sometimes five minutes. That's how my setting is because there have been times I've labored on the computer and I've lost it. And sometimes if I've just lost the last five minutes' work, I'm pretty stressful because I have to now try to recreate what I think I just wrote in the last five minutes and I'm not happy about it. But there's lots of times it's more than losing five minutes work on a computer. You labor in some way and it's in vain. It's to no good end. But in this Jerusalem, there's a certain prosperity and productivity where you enjoy all the fruit of your labor. I mean, it's a rich life. And then lastly, there's a certain harmony and peace. First, harmony with God. Where the Lord says, before they call, I will answer. The relationship with the Lord is going to be that close, that tight, that intimate. But it's not just a relationship between the Lord's people and the Lord himself, but even in all of creation, in all of nature, there's a harmony that has never existed before, that you've never seen. It will, it's, going to, you know, it's going to completely crash the wild animals videos where they show animals attacking one another and fight. There's not going to be any of that in this new heaven. And this new earth. Some, some readers take this and they look at it as being poetic and idealized. And by the way, I should say, no matter how you try to understand the features in Isaiah chapter 65, you've got people on your side. There are people that think, and good people. I'm not talking, well, there's those that really believe the Bible and there's that really don't. People who have high regard for Scripture view the details of what it What is on the screen right now, they view it differently. And some look at at this language as very poetical, not meant to be taken literally, it's idealized. It's picturing an idealized setting. So some will say it's an idealized future. It's just picturing this wonderful future in, in terms with which they're familiar now. Like right now, Isaiah would say, life is difficult. Life is disappointing. Life has sorrow. And so I, my ideal would be that we don't have those things. Some would say it's not an idealized future so much as it is an idealized present. Uh, believe it or not, there's some commentators that argue that this is describing our present, an idealized present. 
it seems a bit of a stretch to me to say that that description pictures are present, but some do, and they are Christians. They're, they're good Bible-believing people, but they view all this very poetically and very much idealized. The second alternative is to take it more literal. That when it talks about harmony and peace in nature, it's not just picturing what would be an ideal, it's picturing what actually is taking place. That there is harmony in God's creation. Kind of going back to the garden. Going back before sin. It's going back to the Garden of Eden. What is being described here. This prosperity and productivity. This is obviously probably the hardest thing to try to figure out how that should be understood, this diminished disease and death, rather than the absence of disease and death. It's interesting. Anything that Isaiah is saying now, he's already said before. He's already talked about. He's used different language. He's used different terms. It's worth turning to a couple of these places. So turning your Bibles to... um, Oh, let me find it on my... um, Let's go to... Uh, let's go to, uh, let's start with chapter 2. Go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 2. Then we'll do 11. And then we'll do 25 and I'll skip 62. So go to Isaiah chapter 2. This has been Isaiah's, his hope, his faith, his confidence in what God has promised regarding Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 1. This is right after a horrible depiction of sin in, in chapter 1. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between the nations. That's what we're talking about in Sunday school. That's what Peter's expecting. Jerusalem is going to be this mighty light where the nations come and they hear the word of the Lord. And they're judged by Israel and by the Messiah who comes to bring times of refreshing. That's exactly where we were at where Larry was at in Sunday school. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. I'm not going to read the first five verses, though it fits. I want to just pick up with verse 6 because it has this, uh, uh, an earlier picture of harmony in nature. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the, ha- and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." One commentator said, isn't that a little much? Isn't that hard to believe that a lion is grazing? And he came back with, is it any harder to believe that God could resurrect a dead sinner to life? 
Isn't that the greater... If God can take a dead sinner and give him the life of God so that he loves that which he abhorred before, that's having a lion graze like an animal is nothing. That's small potatoes. Now, though it, some are going to take it poetically. It's an idealized future. Some are going to take it more literal. I take it more literal. But both are good. Zechariah, Zachari- well, I said I'd do Isaiah 25. Go to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25 and verse 6. It reads this way. And Isaiah could have said this in chapter 65, but he didn't. In Isaiah 25, he said, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he shall swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. He could have said in Isaiah 65, he's going to take away death forever like he did in 25. But in Isaiah 65, he said it's diminished. It's not like we've known previously, which is interesting. Now, probably, I think think it's safe to say everybody, no matter how you try to understand this mess on the board, no matter how you try to understand it, to some degree, you, you take it poetically. And to some degree, you say, well, I think that's an actual thing that happened. And it's just the mixture of how you come up with that. I think there's poetic language uh, used in Isaiah chapter 25. But I think it's also communicating something actual and real. But it's difficult to know exactly because it hasn't happened yet. So we have to extend a little bit of grace in understanding whether you agree or whether you disagree. And if I'm wrong about a lot of these details and you want to wag your finger at me and say, I knew you were wrong, you know, I, I wasn't buying it from the first time you ever said it, you're welcome to do that. Uh, but I may return the favor if I'm right. <clears throat> so let's build on this. Isaiah emphasizes and highlights New Jerusalem. Isaiah, when he pictures what God is going to do, the focal point is almost, I think, entirely, really, through the entire vision of Isaiah, it always goes back to Jerusalem. For Isaiah, his book would be New Jerusalem, New Jerusalem theology. There was an old Jerusalem, and that old Jerusalem seemed unredeemable. That old Jerusalem was stained with blood. That old Jerusalem had oppression. That old Jerusalem had leaders that that abused the flock of God. But there's a new Jerusalem coming. And Isaiah, repeatedly as he works through this long vision, we call it 66 chapters, he keeps coming back to this beautiful new Jerusalem where all that God has ever promised is going to be fulfilled. The second major prophet is Jeremiah. What does Jeremiah emphasize? Jeremiah emphasizes and highlights a new covenant. For Jeremiah, the the focal point isn't Jerusalem, it's the covenant. It's the basis on which people are brought into a right relationship with God. It's the basis on which everything is made right. For, for Jeremiah, it's all about the new covenant. 
There's coming a day when I will make a new covenant with my people. Not like the covenant I made with their forefathers, which they broke. This covenant is going to be written on the tablets of their heart. This It's a new covenant. We celebrate the new covenant. We are part of this new covenant when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's not been brought into, into completeness. It's not all fulfilled, but we're in anticipation. We are participating in the new covenant. The last third major prophet, Daniel's considered major prophet simply because of, uh, because of the scope of what he writes about. But in terms of just who wrote the volume of what was written, there's only three. Isaiah wrote a lot, Jeremiah wrote a lot, and Ezekiel wrote a lot. Isaiah emphasizes New Jerusalem. Jeremiah emphasizes New Covenant. What does Ezekiel emphasize? What Ezekiel highlights, what he emphasizes, is a new heart. Is a new heart. Ezekiel loves to talk about the heart that God will give his people. He's going to take out the stony heart and give them a heart of flesh. He's going to sprinkle water on them and make them new. You've got a new Jerusalem. You've got a new covenant. And then God's people have a new heart where they desire to please him and love him and know him and worship him. Each one of those major prophets highlights something different. And together it gives us the picture of what God is going to accomplish in redemption for his people. New heavens, new earth. The pulpit commentary is a set of books written in 1910. I've actually got the physical copies. They take up probably an entire shelf on, in my office. Uh, there's a lot, it's, it's very wordy. It was written by one particular individual. I want to say his last name was Spence, but now I forgot. Uh, but at any rate, he's kind of the editor, and he writes a lot of his own commentary. But he also, he's one of those guys that assembles what other people were saying in the 19th century about whatever the text is. So it's a, a very uh, sizable volume of books. I've also got electronically, which I probably use more than the, the physical copy. But in 1910 is when it was published, just to give you a setting. In... Writing about Isaiah chapter 65, the author quotes Franz Dillich, who's a German, a German theologian, a conservative theologian, uh, highly respected. He was probably one of the, one of the best known uh, schol- biblical scholar, conservative biblical scholars of his day. He and a guy named Kiel put together what's called a, the Kiel Dillich uh, Old Testament commentary set. Uh, it's a little bit technical, but it's highly regarded by scholars even to this day, uh, more than 100 years later. So he's going to quote this guy. Uh, so this is the guy I'm going to quote because he sides with me, uh, or I side with him, really, is, is what it looks like. He explains it in a way that I found helpful. You can at least consider it, take it for what it is. It starts off like this. Perhaps, this is the actual author getting ready to quote him, Perhaps the best explanation is, quoting, there are to be altogether three worlds, three ages. Three worlds, three ages. The first age, or ordinary human life as we have hitherto known it, a checkered scene of sin and holiness, of happiness and misery, of sorrow and rejoicing. That's the world in which we live. That's That's the first age, the first world. You know joy and sorrow. You know uh, satisfaction and disappointment. You know disease and death, sometimes very untimely. 
you know, waves of grief in this first, this first age, this ordinary human life. That's the first age. The second age, according to Dillich. The second age, or the period of the millennium, which means a thousand years, it's taken from Revelation 20. Whether it's a thousand years or not, I'm not going to quibble about that. I can take that as poetic. If somebody wants to think it says a thousand years, I think it's got to be a thousand years. I'm not going to quibble about that. I think it's talking about an age, an era, at least. The second age, or period of the millennium, in which the patriarchal measure of human life will return, in which death will no more break off the life that is beginning to bloom, and in which the war of man with the animal world will be exchanged for peace without danger. So the world we have it now is this, I'm going to call it an awful mix of joy and sorrow. But the second age, the second world, is a world what is dominant is the joy, the satisfaction, the vitality. It talks about, he talks about the return uh, to the patriarchal measure of life. Abraham lived to be 175. Uh, his son Isaac lived to be 180. His son Jacob lived to be 147. And it's, it's kind of a return to that era where Isaiah pictures, a, if, a, if a sinner dies at 100 years old, was it, uh, he'll be thought as to have died as an, an infant. People just, the longevity of life is greatly extended in the second age when Christ rules and reigns on earth. And by the way, when I open it up for comments and questions, holy cow, I'm running out of time already. Uh, that clock's a little fast, though, just to be fair. Uh, Feel free to ask a hard question. Like, I'm, I'm okay with that. So that's the second age. The third age, or final state of happiness, when death will be destroyed. Not diminished, destroyed. And sin will be no more. And tears will be wiped from all eyes. And the former things will be passed away altogether. And then he quotes Revelation, or puts in quotes, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4. So three ages, the age we have now, a, a return to the Garden of Eden, and yet there will be some death, and then a future final age where death is completely abolished like Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah chapter 25. He goes on to say, the three ages are distinctly marked only in the apocalyptic vision of St. John the Divine. Like those three ages, boom, 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 you will only find them neatly in succession described in Revelation. John, the last book of the Bible, chapters 20 and 21. Isaiah and the other Old Testament prophets have an indistinct view in which the second age and the third age are confused together. The characteristics chiefly being those of age two, the millennium. But some of the characteristics of age 3 are intermingled. So Isaiah in 65 talks about a new heavens and a new earth, but he then just devotes all of his time to describing the second age in New Jerusalem, which John's revelation will unpack this whole new heavens and a new earth in a bigger way. Finally, it seems that the leading thought of the prophet is the transformation of nature in harmony with the changed nature of man. God will take care of the sin and the oppression and the corruption and the injustice. You know, 
We all know about injustice. If you're in tune with news at all, God's going to take, Christ is going to take care of all that. And in taking care of that, it will have a transformative effect on all the world, all the nations, all the peoples. He ends with, its grandeur needs not be pointed out. Like if you change man, the fact that it's going to change everything else in nature, that, does, that grandeur doesn't need to be pointed out. Ordinarily, indeed, we think of man's dependence on nature. If the thought be pushed to its limits, it ends in materialism, exploitation, corruption, I would add injustice. But here the Lord unveils the transformative changes of human nature and its corresponding flourishing aspect on all culture, all society, all creation. That's what I think is being described in the last part of Isaiah chapter 65. Behold, I create new heavens and new earth. That word new is not, I've completely disregarded the old thing. It's the word that, taken most basically and literally, it's talking about a new moon. It's the word that's used for a new moon. A new, when a new moon appears, it's not like that was, this is now the second one because the old one got tossed away. It's, it's restored. It's reconstructed. It's brought back, which is exactly the language out of Acts chapter 3. This restoration, this reconstruction of what was lost. Because what was constructed in Genesis 1 and 2 was lost. It was deconstructed by sin. It will be reconstructed by Christ in this new Jerusalem. Verse 18, or those are the features we've already looked at. Then verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever and that which I create. For behold, that new heavens and the new earth, behold, is Jerusalem created with joy. Her people with gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. What are your comments and questions? Joe. Um, well, I, you know, I kind of thought I should have probably put my eschatology sheet on the back foyer table again, like the doctrine of future things. But basically, basically, there's, uh, there's basic views. I mean, the view that I'm espousing is premillennial, that Christ is going to come back, he's going to establish, he's going to restore creation, he's going to rule and reign. Uh, so Christ comes before this ruling and reigning. A millennial view is that he's reigning in heaven, uh, or he's reigning among his people. It's spiritual. Uh, there's no physical aspects like what you're reading here. Um, God takes care of his people. He provides for his people, but he's not actually going to rule in Jerusalem. There's, real, there's no real future for the city of Jerusalem in the land of Israel. That would be a millennial. No, no physical reign on earth. Um, those would be the two dominant views. Those would be the two dominant views. So an amillennial view is going to be, take all this very poetically. Sarah. Okay. Three ages where you're not. That's a great question, and it requires a very long answer. I'm very confused. I've never thought. Answer that. Here's, here's the answer to that. Here's the answer to that. Uh, and so I'm not, I'm not a traditional dispensationalist. Which would be, well, I shouldn't even go there. That's just complicated. Okay, so basically, my understanding is this. When Christ comes back, 
those that belong to Christ uh, are caught up to meet him in the air and they accompany Christ to earth. Uh, and they're changed. They can't sin. If you're a believer, when Christ comes back, you receive a glorified, changed body. You are free and kept from sinning for all eternity. All those who are righteous and dead, they rise to meet him in the air as well. We're talking about a whole category of people that can never sin. And they will rule and reign with Christ. So who in the millennium, who in this kingdom can sin? I think it's, it's among all the peoples of the earth who were not gathered against Jerusalem to destroy it, because those that, the nations of the earth that come against Jerusalem and Christ comes back in power and glory to save his people, they're destroyed. But not everybody on the face of the earth comes against Jerusalem. There are who knows how many millions, billions of people on the earth that will enter into the millennium. Their bodies weren't changed because they weren't in Christ. And they will live and die and bear children for however long that period lasts. So that a really great passage that I would refer you to, like if you only want to read one, go to Zechariah, you don't have to go there now, but go to Zechariah chapter 14. So it's the last chapter of Zechariah. And it includes these words. And the, ver, chapter 14, verse 9. The Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site. Well, I'm kind of... Uh, and it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter dis- destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. And then it talks about them basically dying. And then on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah... All right, verse 16. Here it is. Here's what I'm trying to get to. Zechariah 14, 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. So you've got, you've got in that day where Jerusalem is prominent and all the peoples of the earth are recognizing Christ as, as king over all the earth, specifically in Jerusalem. If they don't pay homage, they will suffer plagues. Yes. Yes. I think so, yeah. I think so. I'd have to, I'm going off the top of my head. Jonathan. That's such a nuanced, I can't, I mean, I can't give you a satisfactory answer uh, how that exactly plays out. I know that, believe it or not, uh, one commentator actually referred to C.S. Lewis's space trilogy where there's this picture of death without sorrow, that it's this natural culmination of life and because of uh, how you've received it as a gift of God, 
that it's, you know, sometimes in the Old Testament it, in, it talks about, and he laid his head down and went with his fathers, or what's the like, gathered with his people. I mean, it's, the, it's this wholesome, peaceful, you know, much more blessed experience than what we know it to be today. Uh, and then, so let me, let me address the whole, the difference between my people and verse 20. I, again, I'm not even sure what to do with that. One possibility is when Christ comes back, the church is immediately transformed. Israel recognizes the Messiah, uh, the one whom they've pierced. I don't know that they're transformed and ha- receive, you know, glorified bodies in that moment, that they enter the millennium now believing that Jesus is Messiah. And they've responded in faith, but that Jewish nation as a whole may enter into the millennium, and they are raising families and bearing children, and it would play out that way. So I'm sure there's probably people that that's not exactly what they're saying here. I'm yeah, I mean, I mean, these are the categories that are clear, and then how the details play out in those categories are less clear. There is longevity and vitality. You know, it reminds me of Moses. He died at, what, 120? And doesn't it say that he, was, he had the vitality that he had when he was a young man? I mean, that, that doesn't happen. When you're 120 today, you don't describe that person as having this terrific vitality, but Moses did, and then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all lived much longer lives. So how it plays out, I don't know. I just know these are the categories that he emphasizes. And, and when it becomes reality, we'll see how it plays out. To what degree it's poetic, to what degree it actually is happening, and and things are so changed, it blows our mind that somebody could die, and and not be thought of in the categories in which we understand it now. I I don't know. Somebody else, uh, Connie, uh, and then we'll go back. Uh, well, the third period now the possibility of death is completely removed. I mean, it's completely gone. There is no disease. There's no crying. There's no death. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Right now, every form of government, every, every socioeconomic system is flawed because people are flawed. But in, in Christ's rule and reign, he's a perfect ruler, He's ruling with his own, and there, there aren't systems of injustice. There aren't oppressions. There aren't taking bribes and doing favors. His system of justice is so perfect, and it benefits all the world. Uh, you know, what was it? Winston Churchill said that democracy is the worst form, or was it democracy or capitalism? I think it's democracy is the worst form of government there is, except for every other form. I mean... All of our forms are broken. There isn't, you're not going to come up with a system in our world now that solves injustice. It doesn't mean we shouldn't care about injustice. I'm not saying that. Oh, yeah, I mean, I do think there's a distinction between the two resurrections. I do think they're separated by the rule and reign of Christ. Uh, and it is blessed to be part of that first resurrection and receive your glorified body when Christ comes back in power and glory. Yeah, yeah, I'd have to do Revelation to come up with a more satisfactory, yeah, we did Revelation a while ago, last century, literally. It'd be actually an interesting book to do again. Anybody else have a last thought or comment? You know, there is a 
I don't think it means you don't recognize people. I think the former, thing, the, the former things are the distressing things, the troubling things, the, the failures, the prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You know, why do I keep struggling with, with you know, my sin nature? Why do I, you know, it's all of those things that are not remembered. Right now, Isaiah, he, he's caught between all these wonderful promises, but his present is Israel is mired in sin. You know, promises, sin, and how does it all reconcile? The, the end result is going to be so magnificent, you're not going to be like, oh, you know, filled with regret over the sin and the failure and the unbelief, and the, the, it'll be so overcome by what God has accomplished. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.